0: quite a few years ago now, that we used to have um, monthly events as a church uh, designed for people who weren't Christians. We called it Icon, and uh, we used to uh, run this um, about nine or ten times a year, and we used to uh, hire the the hub at the top of the Royal Mile, uh, which is the the venue. That's the inside of it, and uh, it was a stunning venue, and uh, it was a very relaxed event. And we used to look at different topics each month. Um, there was a bar, people can go and get a drink. Yeah, there'd be sort of short talks and interviews, and then there was a question and answer session. And we ran it for about four or five years, and. Uh, Often there would be 200, 250 people uh, at these events, half of whom uh, who weren't going to any church at all. Um, in terms of evangelistic events, it was the percentage was very, very high uh, of people who weren't Christians. And a few days before one of them, I had a really, really unusual experience. And I had a significant birthday. I can't remember what it was. Um, it wasn't my 80th. Um, but somebody had bought me a birthday present. And uh, they decided that I needed to get in touch with my metrosexual uh, side. And they brought me a facial Now, I had never had a facial before in my life, Um, and so it was some trepidation and anxiety uh, that I went off to House of Fraser um, at the end of Princess Street, and I had a facial. Now, the guy who was giving me a facial was a lovely bloke, Um, and there were lotions, there were cleansers, there were wipes, and there were hot towels that did stuff that I didn't want to know about. Um, And the guy who was giving me the facial was very, very chatty. And we talked, Um, there was me sort of, you know, with my eyes closed, with cucumbers on my whatever, and um, all sorts of things, he was exfoliating and doing things that I'd never heard of before, and uh, we started to talk. And it got to that point in the conversation, because it's quite a sort of vulnerable thing when you're having a facial, and um, he said, what do you do for a living? And I thought, hello, here we go. Um, And I I said, well, actually, I I work for a church, I'm, I'm a clergyman. And the hands that had been exfoliating my face sort of stopped. And he said, oh, really? And usually it was a conversation killer. Um, But he carried on, and we talked about his life and my life. We talked about faith. We talked about doubt. And we talked about all sorts of things. And as we were getting towards what I presumed was the end of the facial, because there wasn't that much of my face left to do, um, I said, actually, we run an event um, for people just like you. People who don't go to church normally, but people who are interested in in thinking more and asking questions about what the Christian faith has to say about particular life issues. He said, Well, what's this month's subject? And I said, Well, actually, this month we're looking at the subject of identity. And I will never forget what happened next. Because, again, the hands that had been doing whatever they'd been doing to my face just stopped. And then the hands were taken away. And I opened my eyes and looked up at him and saw there were tears streaming down his face. And he said, I couldn't come to that. I just couldn't. It would be too painful for me to come to a whole evening looking at the subject of identity because I don't know who I am. And it would be too difficult for me. And I've never forgotten his words. And I've never forgotten his face. And he typifies how lots of people in our society feel about this whole subject of identity. The question of who we really are is one of the most profound questions at the heart of the human soul. And we find different ways of answering it at different stages of our life. In childhood, trying to figure out who you are takes the form of wondering or indeed declaring what job we will do when we grow up. So kids will say, I'm going to be a train driver, I'm going to be a zookeeper, I'm going to be a ballet dancer, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a teacher, I'm going to be an astronaut. Professions of children change on a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis, as they try and project and guess who they're going to be. Strangely, very few children ever say they're going to be a vicar, but there we go. A few years ago, one icon of this developmental stage achieved cult status, particularly amongst students. And when I was a child, um, this was one of the programs that I watched as a kid. this particular face, Mr. Ben, will be instantly recognizable to you. And uh, if you don't know about Mr. Ben, get a life. Um, It probably means that you are a a science student. Um, But Mr. Ben, um, every day in the episode that would take place, um, would leave his um, home um, wearing a suit and a bowler hat, and he would go to this shop, uh, a tailor's shop, and. The, the shop was run by a tailor who wore a fez. Why? Nobody knew. Um, but he wore a fez, a little waistcoat, and he would, he would give Mr. Ben a different set of clothes each day. And Mr. Ben would go into the changing room and then go out of a different door, I think. Maybe it was the same door. Who cares? And anyway, he would emerge um, in whatever context or culture fitted the costume that he'd begin to wear. Uh, So one day he was an Inuit, one day he was a Native American, or in those days they were called Eskimos and Red Indians. Um, Maybe one day he was a firefighter, maybe one day he was an astronaut. And then at the end of the episode, he would go back into the tailor's shop, into the changing room. He would take off the clothes in which he'd had his adventure. He would put on his suit and his bowler hat, and then he would go home again. Apparently, the tragic thing was is that really who he was every day was very boring. And he needed to go to the tailor's shop to get a different identity because the different identity meant a new adventure. He couldn't have an adventure just as who he was. And the tragic thing often is meeting adults who are in that exact same situation that their daily existence is not an adventure and it's not exciting. I think it was a French philosopher who said that most people lead lives of quiet desperation. And for most people, that's how life is. Life just exists day after day after day after day. As we leave childhood behind and move into adolescence, again, the question of who am I dominates as we continue to discover who we are. Insecurities abound in parties or in the schoolyard. People get very, very easily embarrassed in adolescence, or maybe it was just me. In adulthood, we settle for an identity, maybe tied to our job, perhaps, maybe tied to our friends or our family. Maybe we get married, maybe we stay single, and usually, perhaps, our identity is a combination of all the above. However, the question of who we really are remains, the dreaming, perhaps, of what's been called a shadow life. A bit like a sort of Walter Mitty existence, where even though we have one life in our heads, throughout the day we think about other things that we might have done. Um, I think I was up until the age of 15, I still believed deep down that in fact I was the long lost child of the royal family, Uh, and at some point my real identity would be revealed and everybody would know that I was the brother of Prince Charles a shadow life. The author and broadcaster Melvin Bragg summed it up like this. I look at my shadow life most days. I think this could have happened. That could have happened. Relationships work. It accompanies me, my shadow life. When you're a child, you're 17 people in one day. When my son says to me, Daddy, I'm Superman, he is. As we get older, we settle painfully that we are fewer and fewer people. That's why 18-year-olds make the best soldiers, because they have little or no conception of death. And when you get to the age when you suddenly realize you have a finite life, bang. You suddenly realize the shadow life that you've missed. The shadow life of our identity. But the question is, therefore, how do you discover who you are? Society and culture will tell us that it's defined perhaps by where we live, the job that we do or don't do, how much we earn, where we went to school or college or university or not. Uh, One of the things that amazed me moving to Edinburgh, especially uh, for people who go to the private schools in Edinburgh and then stay uh, working and living in the city, is that they grade each other uh, by which school um, they went to. Um, if, you, if you went to a state school, um, you're in a different league completely. Um, but if you go to one of the private schools, they immediately regul- they sort of grade you. Very strange. I remember playing, uh, playing cricket and uh, training one day, and somebody playing a shot in the nets. And someone said, oh, typical Fetesian i.e. somebody that went to Fetis College. I looked at the age of the guy. He was 39 He'd left school 21 years before, but everybody still referred to him as a Fertesian. It's so one of the curious things that happens in Edinburgh that people will very quickly and quite sh- in quite shallow ways label each other, depending on where you stay and what job you do. With the advent of the Internet, maybe your are identity is tied in very much with your relationship status that you update or don't update, your Facebook status, your latest tweet or photo or Instagram or Snapchat, or maybe even your internet history itself somehow defines who you are. But is that who you really are? Surely as human beings, we are more than that. Surely you or I are more than our internet history. Surely you and I are more than what other people say about us or where they choose to grade us in relation to themselves. In the New Testament, the theme of identity is one of the themes that occurs again and again. The Apostle Paul was at pains to try and help the early churches to retain a distinctive identity. Especially because he knew that just around the corner, persecution was about to begin. The Roman Emperor Nero was about to persecute the early church and try and drive it out of existence. The early church was trying to compete in a crowded marketplace where other religions, where the Jewish faith and pagan religions, made demands upon people. The church in Colossae was one of those places. Coming out of its Jewish roots, the church in Colossae was in danger of drifting back into a sort of combination of Judaism and Christianity. Threatened that their identity was being lost, many in this early church were beginning to revert to, to incorporating Judaism into their newfound Christian belief. And so people started to get circumcised because you had to be Jewish first in order to be a real Christian. Dietary rules from Judaism had to be observed. Jewish festivals had to be celebrated. is going to come and read the first few verses of Colossians chapter 3, where Paul tries to assert the identity of these early Christians. In essence, what Paul was saying is this, if you want to avoid this false teaching that somehow you have to become Jewish first and then believe in Jesus, if you want to get away from all these kinds of religious observances, rules and experiences in addition to your faith in Jesus, then I want you to simply do one thing. I want you to focus on Jesus. I want you to think about him and understand two things. Understand what Jesus has done and understand what Jesus will do. Understand what Jesus has done and understand what Jesus will do. So firstly, what Jesus has done, verses 1 and 2. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And what Paul is saying to this church in Colossae is, if you want to know who you are, if you want to know your identity as human beings, if you want to know who God has always intended you to be, then the place that you start is by remembering what Jesus has done on the cross. By remembering the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And that because of the cross of Jesus, because of the death of Jesus, everything has been changed. Our sin has been dealt with, judgment has been passed, mercy has been granted, forgiveness has been extended, everything is finished. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, the Greek word is it means it is paid, literally, something decisive was happening in the relationship between God and humanity. Something complete was being done. And what Paul is saying is that if we then put our faith in Jesus, believe that he is the Son of God, believe that he died in our place on the cross, believe that he paid for our sins, was punished in our place, so that we are now free to enjoy a relationship with God the Father. If we believe that he was raised from the dead, then our fundamental identity has been changed. Something that basic has occurred between God and between human beings who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, believe that he died in their place, believe that he was raised from the dead, and believe that he is coming again. Our fundamental identity, our fundamental status has altered. We've moved from death to life. We've gone from darkness to light. And that from now on, our primary identity is not as somebody who's British, as somebody who's Scottish, or English, or Welsh, or Northern Irish, or American. It's not as male or female. It's not bound up with the job that we do or our marital status, because now we were outside of Christ. And now we are in Christ. Our status and our identity has changed. Our status, our past, our present and our future has altered. And I was just thinking this week and and, and reading this week and, and somebody put it this way, which I found really, really helpful. One writer said, for decades in the church in the West, in the evangelical church in particular... We've focused and we've indeed invited, we've, we've asked, um, whether it's Billy Graham or J. John or, or whoever is an evangelist, we've asked people to ask Jesus into their lives. That's the phrase that's used. And this writer made the point that actually that phrase, asking Jesus into your life, is not found anywhere in the New Testament. It's not the New Testament definition of what it is to be a Christian. Now, it can be really a really helpful way of thinking about it. It can be really, really helpful, as we were thinking in one of the earlier songs, to think that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. That, that is true. That's also affirmed in the New Testament. But actually, what is far more significant and far more important and far more occurring in the New Testament is not us asking Jesus into our lives, but it's Jesus inviting us into his. Now, that's fundamentally different. You see, in the West, we like to think of it in terms of quite individualistic, consumerist faith. I will ask Jesus into my life because of what Jesus can offer me. According to the New Testament, what is actually on offer is something very different, where Jesus himself offers and asks us to enter into his life. You see, it's a completely different way of looking at being a Christian. It's not about fitting Jesus into our lives. It's about us being invited into the very life of God. That's how our identity changes, because we are invited into the life of Jesus, into the life of the Godhead itself, into the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are invited into God's life. You know, I'm going to use another Disney analogy in a minute, but um, one just sprung to mind, Finding Nemo. You know, when when they, when they try and look for the for the, the that current, that Gulf Stream, um, when they're, they're looking and, and they he, he finds a, a turtle, and they go, was it head noggin dude or something? It's some sort of ancient liturgical greeting, um, which is in a Disney film. Um, but they just eventually they just they get caught in the Gulf Stream and they go whoosh from where they are um, to where Nemo's dad is. That's a picture of what it means for us to be invited into the life of Christ. We're invited into the life of God, and sometimes it means that we just rest there. But fundamentally, what Paul is saying is that we need to remember what God has done in Christ, and we therefore need to remember who we are. It is like that bit in The Lion King, uh, when Simba, once he's grown up and trying to figure out who he is, what his identity is, has this vision, has this picture of Mufasa in the clouds. And, and, and that great voice of Mufasa, which is also the voice of Darth Vader, which is very confusing, <laughs> um, sort of beams, sort of goes out and says, Mufasa, Mufasa speaks and says, Simba, Simba, remember, remember who you are. And, and, and Simba in, in, in that picture runs back to the pride and all that's playing in the background is remember, 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 remember. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. He's saying remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done. Remember that you've been invited into the life of Jesus. That you've been invited into the life of the Godhead. Remember who you are, that now your status, your identity has changed. You've gone from death to life, from darkness to light. You've now crossed over and you've become a son and a daughter of the living God. Your identity has fundamentally changed. So remember what Christ has done. Secondly, and quickly, verses 3 and 4, remember what Christ will do. Do, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This new identity is not simply based on what Jesus has done, it is also based on what he will do. It's a heavenly perspective. It looks forward as well as backwards. It has an eternal perspective, but makes a difference to life here on earth. Not only is our life hidden with Christ in God, but so is our future. And Paul is saying, therefore, in the light of our future that will be revealed when Jesus comes back, we should live different lives, lives that are characterized by the kingdom of God, rather than the culture of Edinburgh or the values of 21st century Scotland. Paul says, because Christ is coming, because we believe that our King is coming, then that should mean that we live a different type of life. Not out of fear, because we realize that one day our life will be revealed in glory. When Jesus is revealed in glory, then our lives will also be revealed in glory. When Jesus comes again and history is wrapped up, then everything will be revealed, including who you really are and who I really am. Everything will be revealed. And the paradox is, if we remember who we really are, then who we really are will be revealed. But the paradox is that we need God to work in us so the real us can be revealed. Another analogy from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books. And there's that character in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader called Eustace. And Eustace is horrible. He's arrogant, he's rude, he's dismissive, he's greedy. And because of his greed, when they get to an island, he steals a gold band. And the gold band, because of the magic associated with it, turns him into a dragon. And eventually the the other children realise that it's Eustace who is the dragon. And they try and help him, and Eustace tries to get rid of the skin of the dragon so that the real Eustace again will be revealed. And there's this scene in in the book or the the film where Eustace the dragon comes face to face with a Christ-like figure who is Aslan the lion. And Eustace is trying to peel off The skin of the dragon because if he doesn't peel off the skin of the dragon by sunset he will stay a dragon and he's trying to peel off and he peels off one layer and to his horror when he peels off a layer of the dragon's skin there's another layer underneath and then there's this moment when Aslan steps forward and says Eustace you will have to allow me to undress you And Aslan takes his claw and starts to tear at Eustace's skin. And in the book, it says that Eustace thinks he's about to die because it's so painful. But he realizes that if he doesn't allow Aslan to peel away his skin, then he will be stuck as a dragon. And eventually, bit by bit, painfully, bit by bit, the dragon's skin is peeled off by Aslan. And in a great analogy of baptism, Eustace dives into a pool of water. And the real Eustace is revealed again. He's a boy. That's a great picture of what it means to grow as a Christian. Because part of it involves allowing God, allowing Jesus, to peel our layers away. And that can be really painful for some of us. But as we allow Jesus to peel the layers off us, the real us is revealed. We need to do our part. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember what he will do. But also we need to allow God to work in us every day, peeling off the layers until the real us is revealed. Now the theological word is sanctification. In essence, it means simply becoming like Jesus. And that's what happens as we allow the Spirit of God to work in us and to peel our layers away. But actually it's not the outer layers It's the layers inside. It's the layers of jealousy and greed and lust and all the other stuff that's in you and in me. And we need to open ourselves up. If we're to become the real us, if the real us is going to be revealed, who we really are in Christ, then all the other stuff, and for some of us there have been decades of stuff, The people have projected onto us. They've transferred. Even church has put stuff onto us. And it's not who God wants us to be. Because Jesus sees a far more beautiful, far more lovely, far more perfect version of who we really are. But the challenge for us is to allow God to come and begin to peel away those layers. And for some of us, that might be really, really painful. But it's only as we remember what Christ has done and his amazing love for us that we realize that even though it's painful, as he's peeling the layers away, he's doing it out of love. Because he wants who we really are, our full potential in him, to be revealed. So what does it mean this evening for us to allow God to peel those layers inside each one of us? What does it mean for each of us to remember what Christ has done and to remember what Christ will do? It will be different things for different ones of us. Different ones of us will have different layers that need peeling away. I think Mark and the band are going to come and sing a song. Um, and we're going to stay sitting. And I just want you to listen to the words of this song. It's a song that speaks about who Jesus is and the fact that he is over all. And you might want you to close your eyes and invite the Spirit of God just to begin maybe gently and lovingly, maybe firmly, to put his finger on things in your life and my life that he wants to peel away so that the real us might be revealed.